welcome to podcast number seven of the practice of nonprofit leadership. I'm Tim Barnes. And I'm Nathan Ruby. Well, Nathan, we're in our founder series about what it takes to start a nonprofit and some of the things you need to know. And, and I was thinking about our topic today. And, you know, I've had some people come to me and go, hey, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made? <laughs> and, I usually, and I usually go, how much time do you have? <laughs> too many. Yeah, my list is long. But the thing that came to mind was, you know, I had a chance a long time ago to buy Apple stock at $18 a share. But I didn't think I had any money. And if I would have done that, wow. Anyway, there's plenty of other mistakes I've made. But, um, but today we're going to talk about uh, five mistakes that founders make when they start their their start their nonprofit. So Nathan, why do you think it's important for us to uh, to talk about mistakes? Well, and I think you know Tim, you and I we love founders and and this series is is to celebrate founders and um, you know we both between the two of us I mean we have worked for founders and we have consulted with founders and we've been on the board of founders. Um, so we've been around them and, and, and have a, a fairly good understanding of, of what makes a lot of them tick. And so the mistakes are, are really not to point out faults of founders, but to really to help if you're thinking of, of starting an organization, maybe you know, these are some things to think about that will save you a little bit of time, energy, and effort as you're putting together your own uh, vision of how you want to change the world. Right. And, and mistakes aren't bad. Uh, that's how we learn. But hopefully, maybe we can uh, can help you get ahead of this a little bit, so you can make other mistakes, and we'll That's talk right. about That's those right. later. <laughs> but anyway, so here here are five things that we um, have seen founders do that we think is is a mistake in helping their their organization grow. Yeah. So the the first one, um, and these are not in any particular order. One's not more important than the other. They're just the order that we're talking about them. But is uh, stacking the board with friends and family. Or at the, or yes, people uh, that would fit in there too. And you know, there comes a time when founder has to fish or cut bait. You know, they've been thinking about this, they've been planning this, they've been loving this in their heart, they've been visualizing this, and there comes a point where you literally sign on the dotted line, and you've now created your your organization, your company within the state. You apply for your five hundred one c three status, and you you sign on the dotted line. And when you send in the paperwork for the 501c3 paperwork, you have to have a board, a list of board members. And I think it's three. I think you have to have at least three, but there's no, there's no rule on who those three can be. And so what a lot of founders will do is they, a lot of times they haven't even thought about this. And all of a sudden the question comes up and says, who's, who's your board members? And they just, it's like, oh my gosh. And so they grab you know, their spouse or their a child or a neighbor or a friend, and they put those down and then that's what they go with. Um, and as you build out your board from three to four to five, you, you really have to focus on not stacking it with people that are just going to say yes. I mean, every organization needs help in specific areas. I mean, there's administration and there's program and there's finance and there's fundraising, there's governance and there's marketing communications. Those are all areas that, that a fledgling new organization needs help in. And one of the great ways to get help in those categories is through your board members. That is a prime way to go out and get expertise that is a in a volunteer format 
is to do that through your board. And so we just, we want you to make sure that you're thinking about that as you're selecting board members. So Nathan, you know, it's, it's natural to grab those people that are closest to you when you start the organization. Um, and, and yeah, we just do because we gotta, we gotta fill somebody's name. Right. On, and on they're the going to say yes. Yeah. Well, we, we hope they'll say yes. Yeah. And then, but what, but we're trying to broaden and get you to think a little bit further past just names on the paper. The fact is, is we talked in one of our earlier podcasts, um, these people are going to have huge impact on where the organization goes. So you, and you've had an experience of, you were at an, at a, had a, a experience earlier in your career where you were looking at board members and they, they fit the box of some particular uh, uh, tactical things that you needed, but they ended up not being the right choice. Right. And I think one of the things for me when we look at board members is do they, do they have the passion? Are they drawn to the purpose of the mission? Because it is easy to go, I need someone, oh, they have deep pockets, bring them in. Or they have legal skills, bring them in, you know. Uh, they have deep pockets. Oh, I already said that. Bring them in, you know. <laughs> they have two um, deep pockets. It, yeah, I mean, deep pockets is like a really good thing. But what, we, what we've seen is that if they don't have the passion and drawn to the mission, as, as decisions are made, they can begin to take the organization off track. They can go in a direction that the, the organization really wasn't set up for. And so, you know, even some minimum standards of, you know, are they even, do they get, do they get your material that you send out? Have they been, have they showed up at a place where you're working? You know, it could be, you know, if you're doing a, a homeless shelter, have they, have they showed up? Have they, if you're doing something overseas, have they gone on a trip with you? Yeah. Have you they know, come to an event of some type? Right. Letting them experience so that they really understand what you're, what you're trying to do. All right. So next one is replicating programming that is already available. This is, this is something that, that we see all the time. And, and again, you know, founders, by the time they've signed on the dotted line, they've probably been thinking about this, this thing that they want to do for years. And once they finally decide this is what we're going to do, then they are ready to jump. And um, just to let you know, if, if, if you don't already, there are uh, a pretty good sized number of nonprofits in the United States. Uh, in fact, according to the independent sector, there is 1.6 million nonprofits registered in the U.S. And uh, I think that I don't have a year on that. I think that was maybe 2018. So it's probably more now. Right. Um, and you know, my uh, my day job is uh, with an organization that works in Haiti, uh, Friends of the Children of Haiti, and I'm based in Illinois. And in I just did a simple search of how many organizations in Illinois are working in Haiti, uh, and the answer to that is 87. There are 87 nonprofits registered in Illinois working in Haiti. Do we need 87 organizations in Illinois working in Haiti? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know all of them. I know a lot of them, but you know, there's probably a few that are replication of programming. And so what we're asking you to do, if you're looking at starting a new organization, is go do, go do some research. <clears throat> Look and see who else is doing the things that you want to do in your service area. And I think this is bigger. The more local you are, 
the more uh, the more relevant this is. If, if you're programming, what the impact you want to make is the 300 block of Elm Street. Well, you better know every other organization that's impacting three the 300 block of Elm Street and see if there's another organization that's doing what you want to do. Now, we're not saying then you shouldn't start an organization because maybe you should. What we're saying is go have that conversation. Find out what they're doing. Or is there opportunity to work together? Is there programming you can do together? Do they have a program that's already doing what you want to do that you could come in and help them do better at doing it? So those are just questions that you should be asking. I think one of the one of the lines I hear all the time is no one else is doing what we're doing. <laughs> and and that may be true. That, that could be true. But how do you know that? Exactly. Have you how taken you know? the time to really find out yeah. what is the situation? Who's doing what? Just because the organization doesn't mention Elm Street on their website or their annual report doesn't mean that they're not doing work on Elm Street. So next is, uh, depending on an all-volunteer mindset, uh, most organizations uh, that we have seen um, get started with an all-volunteer cast, and that's totally acceptable. That's very ordinary. That's very common. The, um, the issue that we're asking you to consider is to not depend on that as your solution one year, three year, five years down the road. Um, now, if you're starting, a, the example would be a historical center. If, if you're starting a, a historical center for your county and you don't, your county doesn't have one and you think that's really important, that's great. I, I was a history major. I love history. I especially love local history. We can't have enough uh, county historical centers. Only one per county, though. Uh, <laughs> But if you, that would be very normal to have volunteers lined up to do for opening hours, for operating hours, to do the tours, to work at the front desk. That's that's totally good. And five years from now, those volunteers should still be doing that. Problem is, is when you have some of the key leadership positions of your fundraising or your marketing or your uh, accounting or your program development, those are, you could start off with volunteers in that position, but you will very quickly max them out. And so if you want to grow uh, and grow outside of Elm Street or outside of your county, you're going to have to rely more on professional staff to come in and help you to to fuel the growth of that organization, or else you're just going to be limited. uh, If if you have all volunteers all the time, you're just going to limit your ability to impact more people. I think a lot of times we don't realize how much of an impact a person can have. And oftentimes that person shows up before you're ready in one sense, but, but it is so um, has such impact on the growth of an organization when you're able to bring somebody who has the, the gifts and skills um, and the time to really focus into it. We're not saying that there aren't some really hyper volunteers that are awesome or volunteers at any, any setting. But um, if you want to grow, you're going to need to realize that there are professional people that you need to bring in to make it happen. Yeah. We have example after example, of example of two similar organizations who started relatively in the same time frame. You fast forward 10 years, one's a million dollar budget and, and the other is a, a $250,000 budget. And the difference is the larger organization put an emphasis on getting skilled people to come in sooner than what the smaller organization did. 
and, and we're not saying that that bigger is better. You, you know, you may want to, you, if you're, if you're a County uh, uh, historical center, then, you know, maybe a $250,000 budget is more than you need. And that's fine. And we're not saying that that's bad, but if your vision is to grow and, and impact a larger number of people, then you better be, you better be looking for help sooner than later. Next one is putting fundraising too low on the priority list. Uh, Tim, it's amazing how fundraising comes into just about every one of these that I do. But, you know, uh, your nonprofit needs revenue. to ge- it, It's got to have revenue or else you can't operate. You know, you, you've got to pay the bills. Even, even there, if you're the historical center, you probably have rent. You certainly have the light bill, the electric bill. You've got to pay those expenses. You need revenue to do that. And it is the founder's responsibility to lead the fundraising effort. Yes, you want board members to participate in that. But if you're the founder, that is your job. And what we see is founders, most founders don't start an organization because they're really excited about fundraising. That would be atypical. And if that's you, you're just, you're, you're, you're normal. That's a normal response. Most founders start something because they're passionate about whatever outcome or output that they are trying to create. That's why they're doing this. What they forget is that their ability to create that output is dependent on their ability to fundraise, and it is the founder's job to do that. So if you are starting a new organization and you were unable or unwilling to throw yourself into learning and being good at fundraising, it will be a difficult road for you to travel. And I think I think maybe we go into this with different mindsets about what fundraising is. You know, there there are strategies, there are things you can do. But basically as the founder, you are the most passionate, you have the heart, you understand why this organization's come together. And basically it's getting out there and telling your story, connecting with people, being excited about it. That's what we're that's what we're doing. Yeah, there are some strategies, but we're mostly just saying it's got to be high priority in your schedule to go tell the story and invite people to join you in what you're trying to do. Yeah, you should be, you know, just, just for an easy example, if you're if you're the founder, you should be at every uh uh Rotary Club, Kiwanis Club, Lions Club. You know, all a lot of towns may larger towns may have two or three of each, whatever. If you have seven clubs in your town, you ought to be once a year in front of all seven of those. Um, the the founder is the cheerleader of the organization. And Tim, you're exactly right. Fundraising is, there's a lot of strategy and tactics to fundraising, there, no question. But the number one step is telling your story passionately to people who care about what you do. Man, that was pretty good. I could tweet that. Um it's a good it, thing it, we're recording this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's getting out there and telling your story. And most people, even if even if you just can't stand to fundraise, most founders are passionate about what they're doing and they love to tell the story. Go tell your story. So there's a final point that, that we want to talk about, Nathan, and it it's part of fundraising in one sense, but it's interesting. You're talking about a scarcity mindset. Can you can you explain more what you're talking about in that? Yeah. Scarcity mindset, and this is, yes, it applies to fundraising, but it also implies to your organization in general. A lot of, a lot of founders, you know, you, you, you start an organization, you're, you're totally shoestring budget. You've got barely, uh, barely enough um, uh, money to go around. 
you've got, I mean, you're just, you're, 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 you're just pulling stuff together the best you can. And that is, that's reality, but it's not always going to be that way. And there are people out there who will write checks. There are people out there who have expertise that you need, who will donate it. There are, there is a need out there, probably bigger than what you even imagine is out there. And the scarcity mindset says we are going to be what we are today. And that's what we're going to be because that's all you see. What we're asking you to do is to go beyond that and to look at what could be and vision what could be not only in fundraising, but in people coming and give you the expertise that you need and, and the, the, the output, the, the, the end user who is coming to, to benefit from the services that you're providing, you know, going back to the County historical society, what if every junior high school in the County called you and said, we want to bring, we want to bring our seventh grade class to see the exhibit that you have. That would be awesome. And, and today you can't even get, you know, five seventh graders to come and, and, and walk in your door. So I, I want you as a founder to, we're not saying ignore reality. We're not saying ignore what you have today, but we want you to have a vision for the future that includes this wonderful, amazing thing that has, that has developed because of the time and effort and energy that you and a team of people have put into it. That's the difference between a, a scarcity mindset and a, and a, and a vision for the future. You know, it's believing that there are people who really are looking for opportunities to invest in organizations, in programs that will make an impact, that will make a difference, particularly if they're if they're drawn to that. And we both have had conversations with founders, with leaders of organizations who have had people come and say, what would you do with $10,000 or what would you do with $100,000? And it's like... I have no idea, you know, and, and it may sound so, so crazy, but do you have, do you have a $10,000 idea in your pocket? You, you should um, to do that. I, I shared with Nathan, I was at a conference kind of in our, in our sphere and did it, did a, uh, a seminar on some of the work we we're doing. And in that seminar was the head of a, of, fairly large foundation that I didn't know was there. And um, yeah, we ended up talking, connecting after that. And the question, the question was, you know, what, what do you need? Where, where could we invest? And, you know, and so we had some ideas. We were, we were, we were ready. We were thinking about, about those kinds of things. And it was good that we were, we were doing that. And we ended up getting a large, a large gift on that. You know, the as Americans, we are, um, I don't know if it's endowed by our creator or um, our culture, probably both, but we are hardwired to give. We're hardwired to make a difference. We're hardwired to be part of something bigger and larger, more meaningful than ourselves. And so there are people out there who that you don't even maybe know who will write you substantial checks to your organization. There are people who will get excited about what you're doing, who will lead you to resources that you would never imagine you would have access to. 
Um, there are people looking for praying for exactly what you have to offer that you don't even know who they are. And we just, we want you to understand that that's out there. Does it come easy? It doesn't, well, it may come, you know, in your first week of operation, but usually it doesn't, usually it takes a while, but we just, we want you to know that those things are out there. And the more, the more that you are ready for it, um, you know, that's the phrase, I don't know what the phrase is, but luck isn't, that doesn't happen. It, it Luck is for the prepared or there's some nice little comment about that, but it's, you've got to be, you've got to be thinking that way and you've got to be prepared for that. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the practice of nonprofit leadership, helping you navigate the murky tumultuous waters of nonprofit leadership. Each week, we bring you a mixture of encouragement, information, stories, and practical tools to make your journey just a little easier, more fun, and helping you make a greater impact in the world. Would you like a deeper dive into today's topic? Then come on over to the Practice of Nonprofit Leadership website where you will find resources and tools that you can use. Plus, you can connect with Tim and me. We'd love to hear from you. So to all you executive directors and those aspiring to be one, see you next week.